0: Welcome to The Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media, while we live in a fracturing society launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum. I remain in The Underclass. Imagine a society subjects people to conditions that make them terribly unhappy and gives them the drugs to take away their unhappiness. Science fiction? It is already happening to some extent in our own society. Instead of removing the conditions that make people depressed, modern society gives them antidepressant drugs. In effect, antidepressants are a means of modifying an individual's internal state in such a way as to enable him to tolerate social conditions that he would otherwise find intolerable. Ted Kaczynski.
1: The Unabomber. He began his reign of terror almost 18 years ago. Tonight, this former Berkeley professor is being held. But are the professor and the Unabomber one and the same? Here's Nightline's Chris Beery. The strange story of Theodore Kaczynski begins at this house, where he grew up in the Chicago suburb of Evergreen Park. In high school, he was in the band, biology club, coin club, German club, math club.
0: I went and got my yearbook out, and he was there. And um, I remember the face, and I remember a quiet young man.
1: Quiet, but smart and precocious, Kaczynski earned a scholarship to Harvard, where he graduated at age 20. Only five years later, in 1967, Kaczynski had his PhD in math from the University of Michigan. He began a two-year stint on the faculty at the University of California in Berkeley. Kaczynski quit in 1969. In 1972, he moved to a remote cabin in Stemple Pass, Montana, where he has lived until his apprehension. Tonight, one of the early victims, a Berkeley professor, seemed quietly relieved. This is the closest they've ever come to naming a name. So I kind of believe it might be true, but I just hope it is true, because I'd hate to see anyone else get hurt. The FBI believes it has a strong suspect because he fits their profile in so many ways. A highly intelligent loner, academic background, strong ties to the Midwest, where the Unabomber first struck at Northwestern University outside Chicago. In 1978, a campus guard and the next year a student were injured by two homemade bombs. They were later tied to a device found on board an American Airlines flight between Chicago and Washington. The device misfired, averting a catastrophe. It was clear that the same hand had made both of these bombs. Chris Roney, then the FBI's top explosives expert, first made the connection between the airline bomb and one of the devices at Northwestern. You look at his techniques of soldering. You look at his selection of components. You look at just, just the level of expertise that's shown in carving or shaping things. And you put all that together, you, you, you can arrive at a very individual signature. That signature was obvious again in 1980 at the suburban Chicago home of Percy Wood, a United Airlines executive injured when he opened a book that arrived in the mail. Every device has wood of some uh, shape or form incorporated into the device. There were other tenuous ties among the victims, connections to universities and airlines, hence the nickname Unabomber. Explosives were found at a handful of campuses, including the University of California at Berkeley, where Um, Professor Angelakos picked up a a can that exploded in his hands. The main thing was that I lost uh, the tendons in these fingers, and uh, they would have been reconstructed. Three years later, the Unabomber left another package inside the very same building at Berkeley, where Kaczynski had taught math.
0: Blast badly hurt 26-year-old graduate student John Hauser.
1: I also had my uh, Air Force Academy ring on my right ring finger. And when I, when I uh, opened the device, it blew my fingers and the ring off and left an imprint in the wall itself that showed the curvature of the stone, showed the letters of the word Academy, and uh, portions of the ring itself. In 1985, the Unabomber's busiest year, He sent a bomb to this mailbox at the home of a professor at Michigan, Kaczynski's alma mater. That year, the Unabomber killed for the first time. The bombs were becoming more and more sophisticated. He spends an awful lot of time working on these devices. A lot of care and uh, an obsessive amount of time uh, working on them. Fourteen months later, an explosion in Salt Lake City gave investigators their first big break. There was an eyewitness that was able to give a definitive enough description for an artist to, to make a drawing. By now, the search for the Unabomber had become one of the biggest and most expensive in FBI history. But for the next six years, the Unabomber would go underground. It was during this time, around 1990, when Theodore Kaczynski's father was stricken with cancer and committed suicide. The Unabomber did not strike again until 1993, when explosive packages injured a computer scientist at Yale and a geneticist in California. Later, the Unabomber sent two more bombs that killed. In 1994, Thomas Moser, a New Jersey advertising executive, died opening his mail. And last year, five days after Oklahoma City, timber industry lobbyist Gilbert Murray was killed by a bomb at his Sacramento office. Then, in June, the Unabomber took a frightening new tack. Okay, I need to see your picture along with For six nerve-wracking days, air traffic in California was disrupted and air mail paralyzed. In that time period, the Unabomber had threatened to blow up an airliner leaving Los Angeles in a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. And is it a credible threat? Yes. The Unabomber has uh, carried out bombings before. But the threat never materialized, and the Unabomber was silent until September when he blackmailed the nation's most influential newspapers. Today, there's been a wide-ranging debate about two of the country's leading newspapers giving in to a terrorist demands. The New York Times and Washington Post printed a rambling 35,000-word manuscript that railed against modern technology and ended in this chilling conclusion. In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. That public confession may come up again in court if, indeed, the FBI has finally found its man and ended the Unabomber's 18-year reign of terror. This is Chris Beery for Nightline in Washington.
0: Episode 11. We move to a remote cabin near Lincoln, Montana with no running water or electricity in order to explore the life and mind of a man who would wind up leading the FBI on the longest and most expensive investigation in the history of the Bureau. The man we would all come to know as the Unabomber, after he was reported to have engaged in a nationwide bombing campaign between 1978 and 1995, killing three people and injuring 23 others. Today we reject the intolerable conditions we're expected to embrace as a normal mode of existence, once again asking the uncomfortable questions, casting much doubt on the official version of events we're meant to accept as reality. According to an article at the Seattle Times published April 4th, 1996, when Ted John Kaczynski, 53, was taken into custody yesterday for his possible connection to deadly bombings since 1978. Many residents of this rural town were surprised to learn his real name. For at least ten years, they knew him only as the Hermit, the disheveled, silent man who lived in a one-room cabin and rode his clunker bicycle into town every few weeks. Kaczynski's remote cabin with no electricity, plumbing, or telephone is near Stimple Pass about five miles outside of Lincoln. So far had Kaczynski removed himself from society that an FBI agent watching his cabin from a snowbank once saw a cougar stalk and kill a deer. With no sewage hookup, he used his feces to fertilize his vegetable garden. The bearded, long-haired loner who never married would ride his bicycle into town for supplies or long visits to the public library. When the snow was deep, he'd hitch a ride on the mail truck or walk. Like Kaczynski himself, the cabin seemed rough and wild on the outside. Garbage cans overflowed, beer cans were strewn about the yard, but the jumbled exterior gave no hint of what lay inside. The ten-foot-by-twelve-foot cabin was wall-to-wall books, according to a neighbor. The only indication that the reclusive mountain man had another life as a Harvard-trained mathematician, who, according to the FBI, became one of the nation's most wanted terrorists. They were not thrown about, but neatly stacked along the walls, said Lee Mason, who lives less than a mile away. The only other thing I saw was a table and a chair. Mandy Wilson, who delivered his firewood, recalled seeing a large number of candles, apparently to read by. Kaczynski, described as thin-lipped and five and a half feet tall, had lived in the town for more than a decade. But no one interviewed yesterday knew about his Harvard degree or his talent for mathematics, or, if the FBI is correct, his affinity for building bombs. Theodore John Kaczynski was born on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. By 1952, the family would move to a suburb called Evergreen Park, where Ted would be required to take an IQ test given by a school counselor in the fifth grade when he was only 12 years old. He would score a 167 and was considered to be a genius. This would prove to be a formative event in young Ted's life, being forced to skip the sixth grade where he was reportedly doing well socially, even being considered somewhat of a leader to his classmates. But when moving ahead, younger Ted would be bullied by his older classmates, creating an atmosphere where he began to feel he could no longer fit in socially. His parents were reported to be wonderful people by many of their neighbors from this time one even going so far as to say they would sacrifice everything they had for their children. They also would describe Young Ted as very smart but a lonely individual. His high school friend Russell Mosney would even say it was tough on him in regard to his friend's emotional needs taking a backseat to his intellectual brilliance. According to an article found at USA Today published in 1996, One neighbor, Evelyn Vanderlyn, said, I have never known anyone who had a brain like he did. Another classmate, Wayne Tripton, would say, He doesn't remember Ted standing out in a crowd. It was like Ted could be there and be disappeared at the same time. A very underreported story in connection to the origin of Ted's mentality shift as a young person. It would happen when he was only an infant. A report at Oxygen.com by Jill Sederstrom claims that when Ted Kaczynski was just a baby, he was temporarily separated from his parents, and his mother has always believed that the experience may have permanently scarred him. He got sick and was taken to the hospital with hives or swollen red bumps that appear on the skin, and his family says he was isolated from his parents as as doctors tried to determine what was wrong with the infant. Mom always faulted the hospital. They would have been there every day visiting him, but the hospital said no, brother David Kaczynski said in a docu-series called Unabomber, in his own words. It was kind of like, we don't want parents to be in the way. We've got our work to do. We have our little baby to cure, so keep your distance. They were only allowed to visit him two times a week for two hours. He'd come out and he'd never been the same after that, she said. Ted had completely shut down after returning home and stopped smiling and having eye contact with his parents. According to David, it took weeks for his parents to regain his trust a little bit and be able to make some eye contact with their young son, Ted. Their mother would also tell David that, Your brother screamed in terror when I had to hand him over to the nurse and she took him away to another room. He was terribly afraid, and he thought Dad and I had abandoned him to a cruel strangers. He probably thought we didn't love him anymore, and that we would never come back to bring him home again. The hurt never went away completely. A Ph.D., Peter Vronsky would subsequently posit the theory that an infant that doesn't bond with the mother develops psychopathy as a defense mechanism that they feel no pain, they feel no trauma, but of course at the same time they lose a sense of empathy, a moral compass, similar to dissociative identity disorder. Family also had concerns of Ted potentially being on the spectrum to some degree. Reportedly, as a child, Kaczynski had a fear of people and buildings and played beside other children rather than interacting with them. His mother was so worried by his poor social development that she considered entering him in a study for autistic children, but would decide against it due to the fact that it would have been too restrictive to Ted's mathematical talents. The San Francisco Gate would report that there were times he would retreat to his attic room and not want to be disturbed, other times he seemed to be in a trance, Wanda Kaczynski told authorities, as if a veil would descend and he would shut others out as if in a catatonic state. He later developed austere personal habits, his brothers recalled. He never drank alcohol, coffee, or tea, since he deplored the consumption of substances that have mind-altering qualities. Ted would go on to excel academically throughout high school. He played the trombone in the marching band and joined multiple clubs, including the coin club, the German club, the biology club, and of course the math club. A Chicago Tribune article would even mention that while Ted, during this time, had developed an obsession with complex mathematics, he would spend hours studying and solving extremely difficult problems. He had become known with a few other like minded boys at the school with interests in science and mathematics as the briefcase boys, for their habit of carrying briefcases around. Ted was outperforming others to such a degree that he would also skip the 11th grade and end up graduating by the age of 15 years old. He would be one of the school's five national merit finalists, receiving encouragement to apply to Harvard University where he would be accepted by 1958 and attend on scholarship at only 16 years old. According to an article at AHRP.org, Dr. Henry Murray, chairman of Harvard University's Department of Social Relations, devised a screening test for the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, precursor of the CIA, in order to assess the suitability of applicants for the Secret Service. It tested an applicant's ability to withstand harsh interrogation. In the 1950s, Murray led a Harvard team of psychologists in a series of three-year experiments, titled Multiform Assessments of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men. The experiments were conducted on 22 Harvard undergraduates. The intent was to measure how the students reacted under stress. One of the subjects in these exceedingly stressful, ethically indefensible, confrontational experiments was 16-year-old Theodore Kaczynski. In order to preserve the anonymity of these student guinea pigs, they would refer to them by code names only. And in an article at The Atlantic in 2000, they claimed that the future Unabomber's code name in the experiment was lawful. But the experiment was anything but lawful. In fact, it was sadistic. The intent of the experiment was to undermine the students' sense of self-worth by subjecting them to intense aggressive verbal attack. Murray himself described the intensive interrogation the students were subjected to as vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks that assaulted the subject's egos and most cherished ideals and beliefs. The Alliance for Human Research Protection continued outlining the details of the abuse, claiming that the undergraduates were asked to write an autobiographical essay describing their most personal beliefs and aspirations, as well as their deepest sexual desires. They were taken individually to an interrogation room with a one way mirror where they were strapped to a chair with electrodes attached to monitor their physiological responses. Each student was subjected to lengthy, abusive harangues by a law school student who had been given a detailed psychological battle plan by Murray. The students were deceived, ridiculed, and humiliated. In essence, Students were put through a brutal version of the third degree, otherwise known as torture. Over the next three years, the volunteers were repeatedly humiliated, verbally assaulted, and sexually debased. The entire proceeding was filmed from behind a one-way mirror, and each victim was required to relive his humiliation on film. Ted Kaczynski would spend over 200 hours as a part of this study that would later be traced back to the man himself, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, better known as the black sorcerer of the Central Intelligence Agency and the driving force behind the covert illegal experiments known as Project MKUltra. Dr. Henry Murray was director of the Harvard Psychological Clinic in the School of Arts and Sciences after 1930. During World War II, He had left Harvard in order to work as lieutenant colonel for the Office of Strategic Services, where they utilized his technique called the Situation Test, in order to help facilitate the assessments of potential agents for the OSS and the British War Officer Selection Board. Murray would even participate in helping complete the personality analysis of Adolf Hitler, before returning to Harvard by 1947 as a chief researcher where he would establish the psychological clinic annex on campus, later becoming the site for the experiments. Harvard and the Unabomber, the education of an American terrorist, written by Alston Chase, would subsequently connect Kaczynski's abusive experiences under Murray to his later criminal career, also claiming that Ted's attorneys attributed his hostility towards mind-control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. After leaving Harvard in 1962, he would apply to three separate schools. His top two choices for postgraduate education were the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago. Both schools would accept him, but no financial aid or teaching position would be offered, unlike the University of Michigan, who offered him a teaching appointment along with a significant annual grant. After accepting the offer at Michigan, he would earn his master's degree and his doctoral degree in mathematics, where he specialized specifically in geometric function theory. And according to the Michigan Daily, one professor by the name of Alan Shields wrote about Kaczynski in a great evaluation that he was the best man I have seen. Ted would later write in a hand-copied excerpt from his unpublished autobiography. So I went to the University of Michigan in the fall of 1962, and I spent five years there. These were the most miserable years of my life. Even in 2006, he still maintained that he had unpleasant memories of Michigan and felt that the university had low standards for grading. His 1967 dissertation won the prize for Michigan's best mathematics dissertation of the year, his doctoral advisor calling it the best I have ever directed. At 25 years old, he was already on track for tenure. After being appointed as an assistant professor in 1968 where he was teaching mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley, according to the New York Times in 1996, he seemed uncomfortable with teaching, taught straight from the textbook, and refused to answer questions. And by June 30, 1969, without any explanation, he would resign. Even the chairman of the mathematics department would describe it as quite out of the blue, claiming that Kaczynski seemed almost pathologically shy, and that, as far as he knew, had made no close friends in the department noting that efforts to bring him more into the swing of things had failed. Ted would move back to his parents' house in Illinois after resigning from Berkeley, and within two years he would build a small cabin in the woods outside Lincoln, Montana, in an effort to live a simple life off the grid with the goal of living autonomously and becoming as self-sufficient as possible. He and his brother Dave had bought the one in a quarter-acre property for around $2,100, and Ted built the 10-by-12-foot cabin that was described as having a small platform bed, a table and a chair, storage trunks, lots of books, and at the center, a wood-burning stove. Much later, after his arrest, he would say in an interview, It's kind of rolling country, not flat, and when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-day hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on I decided that, rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Multiple reports show that it was by 1975 that Ted started experimenting with different tactics of environmental sabotage on neighboring developments near his cabin. He was reported to have potentially been responsible for arson, as well as booby-trapping the areas. He had been reading many different books on political philosophy, and according to his brother David, he had become obsessed with a book called The Technological Society, even referring to it as Ted's Bible. When I read the book for the first time, I was delighted, because I thought, Here is someone who is saying what I have already been thinking, Kaczynski said in 1998. In the archives at Cornell University, you can find a chronological comprehensive breakdown of the Unabomber investigation claiming, The first bomb attributed to the Unabomber was found on May 25, 1978. It was a mail parcel left on the campus of the University of Illinois, Chicago wrapped in a brown paper bag. The return address on the parcel was of a professor at Northwestern University. School officials returned the package to Northwestern where it exploded, causing minor damage. About a year later, on May 9, 1979, a pipe bomb was placed in a room at Northwestern University. A Northwestern graduate student picked up the bomb and it exploded, injuring him. Later that year, on November 15th, a bomb exploded aboard American Airlines Flight 444 en route from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Although the plane landed safely, 12 passengers were treated for smoke inhalation. Investigators later determined that the bomb was inside a mail parcel in the cargo section of the plane. They determined that the package was mailed from Elgin, Illinois. Up to this point, the bombs were treated as separate cases. If there was any thought that these were the work of a single man, it wasn't reflected in the work of the federal and local authorities involved. It took an attack against a well-known public figure to bring the Unabomber to the attention of federal investigators. On June 3, 1980, Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines, received a letter in the mail The letter informed him that he would soon be receiving a book of social significance. It was signed Enoch W. Fisher. A week later, on June 10th, Wood received a hollowed-out copy of Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. When he opened the book, it exploded, injuring him. Postal inspectors responded to the Wood bomb, having little or no knowledge about Flight 444. They contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigation to investigate the wood bombing. A case file was opened, and the case was called Unabomb. According to the FBI's six-letter naming convention, UNA stood for United Airlines. Because of design similarities between the wood bomb and the Flight 444 bombing, they attributed the two bombs to the same actor. Eventually, they also included the two Northwestern bombings to the Unabomber as well. Almost left unmentioned, if not for a few remote places online, including webarchive.org, is the fact that after sending the first bomb in the post, May 25, 1978, with a return address for the Northwestern professor, he temporarily moves back home to the Chicago area for a time getting a job working as a press operator at Foam Cutting Engineers in Addison, Illinois, where his brother David would be his supervisor. This would barely even last two months, when another supervisor at the plant, a woman named Ellen Tarmichael, had dinner with Kaczynski. Two weeks later, they went apple picking and baked an apple pie at his parents' house, where she proceeds to tell him that she does not wish to see him further on a social basis. Soon after, Rude, suggestive, limeric poems about Tarmichael tar- began to appear around the plant. By August 23rd, 1978, exactly two months on the job, Ted's brother and supervisor David fired him because of the lewd notes he was leaving around the office, leading to an argument settled by Tarmichael, explaining to Ted that David had the authority to fire him, as well as her support in doing so. Less than nine months would pass before Ted would reportedly send his second bomb, we briefly mentioned earlier from the 9th of May 1979, also to Northwestern. Around six months later, by November 14th, a parcel with a bomb hidden inside is mailed from a post office near Chicago and routed to Washington, D.C., being placed into the cargo hold of an American Airlines Boeing 727. The bomb would detonate when the plane reached 34,500 feet due to a barometer being equipped in order to measure altitude, but because of the ignition mechanism not accounting for the pressurized cabin during the flight, the device would not explode or cause the intended damage. Smoke would still fill the cabin, forcing an emergency landing at Dulles Airport, where 18 passengers would be treated for smoke inhalation. The fourth bomb sent to American Airlines President Percy Wood would be the first time initials were used. The letters FC had been etched into the device, and Ted would later explain that the letters stood for Freedom Club. Zinsky would purposely leave false clues in hopes of throwing off investigators, and many people would theorize that he was merely seeking attention, minimizing the effects of the blast by using wood instead of metal which would have maximized potential casualties. But based on the writings of author Robert Graysmith, his obsession with wood became a large factor in the bombings, and the FBI would consider nature, trees, and wood as a common theme with these bombs. Head would even go so far as to target two men by the names of Percy Wood and Leroy Wood. Leroy Wood Berenson was a professor of electrical engineering at BYU, and in October 1981, when his return address was found on a package by a student in the hallway at the University of Utah. He moved it, but after a while became suspicious and notified the campus police who suspected it to be a bomb, subsequently calling in the bomb squad, who used a small explosive charge to defuse by detonation. This would all be reported to the Unabomb Task Force, along with the tag-stamped FC, found as part of the device. That very next year, in 1982, Ted would finally file the paperwork necessary to remove his brother David, as co-owner of the property in Montana. Many people would later suspect that due to Ted's extreme social disorders or even potential autism, his brother's marriage could have been interpreted by him as a sort of betrayal. David Kaczynski would write in depth of his brother's disassociation from the family leading up to the initial bombings, recalling in Psychology Today that his alienation continued with blistering letters to our parents that started arriving in the mid-1970s. The gist was that he had been unhappy all his life because they had never truly loved him. He claimed that they had pushed him academically to feed their own egos and that they'd never taught him appropriate social skills because they didn't care about his happiness. The letters were not an invitation to talk, but an indictment filled with highly dramatized and, in my view, distorted memories. Mom and Dad experienced the full force of their elder son's rejection in the form of a 23-page letter that arrived around 1977. His hand seemed to be shaking with rage as he wrote, Ted wove details from his childhood into an immense dark tapestry of rejection and humiliation. In one place, he noted that Mom once yelled at him for throwing his dirty socks under the bed. She should have known, Ted fumed, that tossing dirty socks under a bed was normal behavior for an adolescent boy. The letter read like a three year old's temper tantrum translated into an adult's analytical language. What I found most disturbing was that it seemed calculated to inflict pain. As much as I tried to normalize Ted's behavior, a voice in the back of my mind told me that something had shifted dramatically in his world. A world so much stranger and darker than I had previously guessed. For years after, he cut off relations with our parents. I still corresponded regularly with Ted. I soon realized that I couldn't soften his feelings toward mom and dad and that I needed to tread carefully around that topic if I wanted to maintain a relationship with him. I couldn't imagine my life without Ted's presence. Nor could I imagine him completely isolated from human contact. And I seemed to be the only person he allowed into his increasingly narrow world. Shortly after he removed his brother as co owner of the property, that very same month, May 1982, a package was mailed to a professor at the University of Vanderbilt named Patrick C. Fisher, whose secretary, by the name of Janet Smith, upon opening his mail, opened a sink trap device with wooden plugs exploding, leading to serious injuries to her face and arms. The return address found on the package was once again for Leroy Wood Berenson, the same return address found on the bomb that was diffused at the University of Utah less than seven months prior, leading investigators to assume that the package was intended for him. Once again, the initials FC were found on a small tag inside the bomb. Less than two months later, July 2nd, in a faculty lounge at UC Berkeley, a professor would find on the ground what he thought to be a piece of engineering equipment, reported to have complicated-looking dials on it and a handle. After lifting the handle, the device would explode, proving to be a pipe bomb inside a gasoline can. A note was found reading, Ooh, it works. I told you it would. RV. The letters FC would once again be present inside the device, and the engineering professor would sustain injuries to his hand, arm, and face. It wouldn't be until May fifteenth, 1985, when another bomb was sent to the exact same place on UC Berkeley campus that had been targeted nearly three years prior, this time severely injuring a graduate student. This would mark the first bomb attributed to the Unabomber, where he would use metal caps instead of the less destructive wooden caps, leading investigators to believe his tactics were escalating as the devices were becoming more sophisticated and powerful over time. Cornell.edu archived an article referencing this time in the investigation, claiming, By this point, the FBI and the Postal Inspection Service had demarcated the investigation. The FBI would handle placed devices, while the Postal Inspection Service would investigate mailed devices. Although the devices were becoming more powerful with each attack, the Unabomber was still a craftsman. Refusing to purchase readily available components, choosing instead to manufacture them himself. Profiles of the Unabomber were still very much at sea. Investigators were putting together a profile of a serial bomber, a virtually unknown commodity, by reference to previous serial arsonists. This was unprecedented. The only thing the feds had to go on was a vague concept of a naturalist obsessed with wood, considered to reside somewhere in either Chicago, San Francisco, or Utah and something to do with what were thought to be initials, F.C., found on almost every device attributed to the Unabomber. It took seven years and eight bombs for Ted to escalate into using metal caps, presumably with the intention to inflict more damage. The next bomb was sent to the weapons manufacturer Boeing in Auburn, Washington. Luckily, the bomb sat in the mailroom for over a month, causing the batteries in the bomb to dry up before workers at the company partially opened the package and became suspicious, quickly notifying a bomb squad that would defuse it by detonation. Nearly five months later, on November fifteenth, 1985, a psychology professor named James McConnell had sent a package opened by his assistant, nearly blowing off his arm. Less than a month later, the first human life was claimed when on December 11th the owner of a Sacramento computer store moved a package in the parking lot, causing it to explode. His death was caused by shrapnel piercing through his heart. All three of these bombs were discovered to have metal plugs with the initials FC. The Unabomber would not strike again until February of 1987 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Just like his prior target, this was another computer rental store although he would get sloppy this time leaving two eyewitness accounts. For the first time, we had a description of the potential perpetrator. A sketch of the suspect was made based on one of the eyewitness reports, and the iconic picture of a hooded man with a mustache and aviators was widely disseminated. This must have scared him, because it would lead to a a six-year hiatus with no sign of the Unabomber until 1993. When he would send a mail bomb to a geneticist named Charles Epstein, who was known for conducting institutional age research. Two days later, a computer scientist at Yale University, David Gelernter, opened a similar package that would detonate and cause him to lose sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and a part of his right hand. Kaczynski had also sent a letter to Gelernter almost two years later that said, People with advanced degrees aren't as smart as they think they are. If you'd had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way techno-nerds like you are changing the world, and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source. December 10, 1994. He would target an advertising executive named Thomas Moser, killing him with a mail bomb, and later writing to the New York Times that it was because of his work helping Exxon repair their public image after the Valdez oil spill. The final victim of the Unabomber was the president of the timber industry lobbying group California Forestry Association, who was also murdered by a mail bomb on April 24, 1995. That very same day, Four separate letters claiming to be a part of an anarchist terrorist group called the Freedom Club would be sent out to four different individuals, including the editor for the New York Times. The context of the letter would provide some perspective on the potential motive behind his selection of targets, including scrupulous details of the devices used in the attacks. He would even offer what he called a bargain, claiming upon the publishing of his 35,000-word essay, the Freedom Club would desist from terrorism. He would mail several more letters to other publications, including copies of what the FBI would come to call the Unabomber Manifesto. After much deliberation, the New York Times and the Washington Post on recommendations from the Attorney General and the Director of the FBI would jointly publish the manifesto September 19, 1995, and in a sort of twist of fate, This would inevitably lead to his capture. By this time, David Kaczynski had been approached by his wife, Linda, and he would later write about a time in the summer of 1995 when she would sit him down for a serious talk, asking, David, has it ever occurred to you, even as a remote possibility, that your brother might be the Unabomber? David would write an article published in 2016 with the title, My Brother, the Unabomber, where he would say, Reading the manifesto on a computer at our local library, I was immobilized by the time I finished the first paragraph. The tone of the opening lines was hauntingly similar to that of Ted's letters condemning our parents. Only here, the indictment was vastly expanded. On the surface, the phraseology was calm and intellectual, but it barely concealed the author's rage, as much as I wanted to. I couldn't absolutely deny that it might be my brother's writing. David and his wife, Linda, would hire a private investigator in an attempt to discreetly investigate his brother, after they reportedly spent time cross-referencing letters Ted had sent to numerous publications in the 70s, concluding that the phrasing was very similar. Both the New York Times and Washington Post would report that David then hired an attorney to organize the evidence and contact the FBI due to concerns that Ted needed to be protected from a potential FBI raid that could possibly result in a similar outcome to that of Waco or Ruby Ridge. He would later admit that after reading the manifesto, he was only half-convinced of the match. However, in 1996, an FBI criminal profiler would determine that after comparing the letters with the manifesto, there was better than a 60% chance. It was now in the hands of the FBI by February 1996, and after using complicated linguistic analysis along with combined evidence, This was enough to obtain a search warrant. It is worth mentioning that according to the affidavit, FBI officials were not at all unanimous in the identification of Ted as the author of the manifesto. And even on the search warrant itself, it was noted that several experts believed the manifesto had been written by another individual. On January 22, 1998, Ted Kaczynski would plead guilty to all charges accepting life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, later attempting to withdraw the plea claiming he had been coerced into accepting it by the judge. The prosecution had been aggressively seeking the death penalty, even after contention surrounding his psychiatric diagnosis would nearly keep him from standing trial. Ted himself would later vehemently reject the psychiatric diagnosis, concluding that he suffered from Paranoid schizophrenia, and two prison psychologists, he claimed, had been telling him for four years that they saw no indication of this, and the diagnosis was ridiculous and a political diagnosis. Many other people have suggested that it was a potential legal strategy used by the family in order to spread the idea he suffered from mental illness in hopes of saving him from execution. Ted's mother, Wanda, would claim in a public statement through her attorney that all her sympathies are with the victims and their families, but she does not believe her son could be the Unabomber. In a sworn statement, Brother David Kaczynski claims he only told the FBI he had suspicions his brother was the Unabomber, but that the warrant made it appear that he believed that that was the case, which did not fit the tone or spirit of what I had told the FBI. Now, before we come off the fence and make judgments of our own, we find it necessary to highlight some of the content with, within the manifesto itself, which reads almost like a prophetic novel outlining the dystopian future we now call the present. In my mind, there is no justification for the violence he's reported to have engaged in, although I find it crucial to approach the reading of his manifesto with an open mind. Industrial Society and Its Future by Theodore Kaczynski The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering, even in in advanced countries. The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful period of adjustment, and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere clogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it it had best break down sooner rather than later. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden, or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that. But we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society." He would later go on to call for the return of primitive lifestyles, suggesting that most people spend their time engaged in useless pursuits. He called surrogate activities. Due to advancements in modern technology, wherein people strive toward artificial goals, including scientific work, consumption of entertainment, political activism, and following sports teams. He even predicted human genetic engineering, going so far as to say that human beings would be adjusted to meet the needs of social systems, rather than the other way around. He committed a large part of his writing to denouncing both leftists and conservatives, starting with an aggressive takedown of modern leftism, writing, The two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism but this segment is highly influential by feelings of inferiority we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense but a whole spectrum of related traits low self-esteem feelings of powerlessness repressive tendencies defeatism guilt self-hatred etc we argue that modern leftists tend to have some su- some such feelings possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors, who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle-to-upper-middle-class families. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak, defeated, repellent, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them. or at best, he grudgingly admits that they exist. Whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, take care of them. He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside, he feels like a loser. He would claim that the conservatives are fools. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently it never occurs to them that they can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. He proceeded to devote entire chapters providing critical analysis to why the restriction of freedom is unavoidable in industrial society, including an elaborate portion covering the idea that technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. He would later say that the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function, and that the system has not yet fully achieved control over all human behavior, although he believed that struggle would play out within the next 40 to 100 years. I urge all of you to read the manifesto in full, and decide for yourselves if it holds any value, And as I mentioned earlier, I don't believe any of this justifies the lethal action he engaged in claiming the lives of three people and permanently scarring 23 others, but I will say, there is more in that manifesto that I strongly agree with than I would care to admit to most people. A broad spectrum of speculative theories have formed and evolved in the years following his capture and some people even claim he was potentially triggered to facilitate the bombings from his prior programming in the MKUltra mind control experiments performed on him at Harvard. They point to a possible covert operation requiring a programmable patsy meant to take the fall once the goal of generating public fear around specific industry and a complicated strategy of problem-reaction-solution had succeeded paving the way for increased measures of government authority like the TSA. They would even say that the manifesto was meant to appeal to government skeptics in order to demonize the very ideas in the minds of the public through association. Others would claim a more plausible theory, that perhaps this was all just an inevitable reaction to his unfortunate experience at Harvard nudging him down a path of isolated radicalization. We end once again reflecting on the words provided by the man himself. Our society tends to regard as a sickness any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual to adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for a sickness, and therefore as good.